Welcome to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. This week, is filibuster reform doomed? And if not, what are the risks of changing the Senate's 60-vote threshold? The Republican Party threatens to pull out of future presidential debates. The U.S. Supreme Court weighs in on vaccine requirements. And some of the more unusual bills lawmakers are considering this legislative session. But first, the Washington State Legislature convened, albeit mostly remotely, this past week. And man, do they have a flurry of bills to get through in a limited time. A 60-day smaller session that you see in the even-numbered years. Uh, They don't have to deal with an operating budget, but they do have to deal with a capital budget. And there's a lot of controversial things already going through. Joining me now is Fox 13's political reporter, a man you're quite familiar with if you listen to this podcast. That's Matt Markovich. And uh, Matt, what are the, some of the more controversial things we're looking at as we head into this legislative session? Well, I think, Jeff, as you look at this short session, like you said, it's just 60 days. They really won't accomplish much. They may get past a dozen or so bills that are new, but primarily this session is known as a fix it, tweak it session. And that's what's going to happen. They're going to go back and look at some bills they passed in last year's session primarily a lot of these controversial policing bills and make the tweaks and fixes that people have been asking for. And that also includes possibly curbing the emergency powers of the governor. And that's been a big controversial issue for two years now. We are now in basically we're almost 700 days into uh, since Governor Inslee declared a state of emergency uh, with COVID and And therefore, he got his constitutional powers to enact emergency legislation. And he's been doing that. And that's why we have all these mass mandates. And and we've been talking about that for two years. Well, that is one of the one of the more controversial subjects uh, going forward here, because last year there was an attempt to curb Inslee's emergency powers, but it was kind of a partisan line vote. And and as you know, Jeff, it's the Democrat majority in both the House and the Senate here, and as well as the governorship. So the Republicans are in the minority and they're not even close to be uh, close to being majority. It's several seats in each house. So the Republicans have brought up again, this idea of curbing the governor's emergency powers and actually putting a day limit on it, 60 days. But this time what's different from last year is that there's some bipartisan support the, in both the House and Senate bills. Uh, there are some co-Democratic co-sponsors, which you didn't have last year. So now this idea, Jeff, may have some legs. So what are some of the specific things? You, you mentioned that 60-day limit on declaring a, a state of emergency in Washington yeah. state. What are some of the others? Because uh, we've, we've talked about this over the last year or so. Governor Inslee has issued these mandates. However, when they needed to be extended by law, he got the approval from, as they say, the, right. the four corners of the state legislature, the leadership of uh, of the House caucuses and the Senate caucuses. That's You're absolutely correct. And Governor Inslee, in his State of the State speech, did a subtle dig at these attempts to curb his powers by saying that during the last uh, during this pandemic, the state legislature, the four corners, as you say, because sometimes they weren't in session. So the, the leaders of the Senate and the House um, basically went ahead and extended his emergency powers 26 times. So if they really wanted to curb his powers, they could have fought him on this. But he made a point that they didn't do that. Well, what's 
you talk about one of the key elements, you're looking for the key elements in some of the legislation. In House Bill 1772, there is a key line that I think, and this is my interpretation of it, that'll be the most controversial. And basically it's saying that the governor, if he wants to extend uh, an emergency powers, uh, an executive order, not only does he have to consult the legislature, he can't do a similar order. So he has to change it. He, he, he just can't rinse and repeat on these things. It has to be a substantial change. And the legislature, if they don't like it, they can, I don't say, I don't write word is veto, but they can make it different. And he can't just extend the same old order over and over again indefinitely. And that's what we have right now, indefinite uh, emergency powers orders. Um, he just can't do that anymore. And I think that's going to be one of the most controversial lines going forward. And again, these bills are going to be heard and in debate. So this is far cry from becoming legislation, but that's going to be a key line. And I'm sure I'm sure the governor would fight tooth and nail and maybe some of the Democrats. And then the other thing that you mentioned that uh, we've also been tracking is the changes to these police reform laws. Now, there's been a lot of criticism, particularly from Republicans, some from Democrats, on some of the measures that were passed last year in the wake of the George Floyd protests and things of that nature. Uh, and, and not to mention the response to the infamous Blake decision, which struck down simple mm-hmm. possession of a controlled substance. What is the legislature looking at doing there? Well, the legislature is going to be looking at those those bills involving police pursuits and being able to uh, use of use use of force on people who are in crisis or mentally ill. Um, right now, there is so much confusion by the police departments. As soon as these bills came out last year uh, about how much force an officer can use when the situation arises that they're dealing with somebody who's under crisis and mentally ill. Basically, right now, you can't touch them. I mean, I'm oversimplifying it, but you can't do anything. You can try and talk to them. And according to uh, I spoke with and interviewed the police chief of Port Angeles, he said that in some of his situations this year, it's actually escalated the situation when the officers couldn't detain the, the suspect or the person in question. And they had to try and convince somebody who's mentally ill supposedly mentally ill to do something. And that's really hard to do because they couldn't use their typical tactics. So police departments, the sheriff's departments throughout the state are asking the legislature to fix some of these laws to fix. When can we actually pursue a suspect with a car, you know, that, uh, and, and, and even by it's their own admission, like, uh, um, Roger Goodman, who is the chairman of the House Public Safety Commission uh, Committee, a very powerful person uh, in Olympia when it comes down to these kind of laws. He's even admitting that there needs to be some tweaks and uh, some adjustments on some of these laws. So there is better for clarification. So that's what you're going to be seeing. I think, again, what I just talked about at the very beginning, uh, everyone's talking about this might be a legislation legislative session of a big compromise, a, a big balancing act. We're going to try and fix things and tweaks things so that both sides can agree on something. And, and these police reform bills that they passed last year is one of the hot topics this year. All right, Matt Markovich, Fox 13 political reporter. Thank you so much as always. You're welcome, Jeff. When we come back, the dangers of filibuster reform and the likelihood of change when the Como Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Essentially dealing a death blow to what Democrats want as filibuster reform, Senator Kirsten Sinema gave a speech on the floor of the U.S. Senate this past week. What is the legislative filibuster other than a tool? 
that requires new federal policy to be broadly supported by senators representing a broader cross-section of Americans, a guardrail. There's no need for me to restate my long-standing support for the 60-vote threshold to pass legislation. And there's no need for me to restate its role protecting our country from wild reversals in federal policy. Demands to eliminate this threshold from whichever party holds the fleeting majority amount to a group of people separated on two sides of a canyon, shouting that solution to their colleagues. And that makes the rift both wider and deeper. Joining us now to discuss is Amber Phillips, political reporter with the Washington Post. And uh, is it pretty much a foregone conclusion that changing the filibuster is not going to happen? Yes. I think you described it as a death blow, and I think that is pretty much spot on. Uh, the reason is Senate Democrats, listen, they all support these two packages, these two pieces of voting rights legislation that would change the way we hold elections in America and, and try to expand that, uh, how people vote and who can vote. But two senators in particular, and really Senator Kristen Sinema, have not supported changing filibuster rules because Republicans are going to filibuster this. Uh, they have a couple times this past year. That requires 60 votes to overcome. Democrats only have 50 senators, and they probably have at least two no votes. And, um, you know, I would say what's interesting over the past couple of weeks is Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, he's taken a lot of the heat as the anti-change-the-filibuster guy. Uh, he has said he'd be open to changing it, some rules if Republicans supported them. That's not a hard no like it used to be. It's Senator Sinema who's been the really big obstacle to this. She doubled down on it when on Thursday she gave this big Senate speech. She said, essentially, I'm not going to support any changes whatsoever to the filibuster. I think that would do more damage to democracy than than uh, not having these voting rights bills passed. Well, if we look back at history, the filibuster has never been in the Constitution. It's never been codified as law. It's just a Senate rule, and it hasn't always been the case. So why the push to change it now? Senate Democrats, I think they just found an issue that they think is more important than the Senate rule. But you're exactly right. Like Some of the supporters of changing this rule came out on the Senate floor this week and said, this isn't in the Constitution. Like our, you know, our democracy won't crumble if we change this rule, and we're just doing a an exception to anything related to voting rights. We're not like ending the filibuster entirely, uh, and so they just they found an issue that they felt was more important than than having this rule in place. But legislative experts I talked to say that Manchin and Cinema are are probably right when they warn that this is a slippery slope. That doing this would erode the filibuster in other places. You know, Republicans could get power back next year, and who knows what they would do. Um, and and so they warn that, like, the filibuster for legislation is probably a goner eventually, and this would be the first major step. And, you know, Democrats just found an issue that they care about more than that. Well, we've seen filibuster reform in the past. It used to be Mr. Smith goes to Washington. You had to stand on the floor and continue right. talking and talking and talking. Now you just have to essentially notify your floor leader. You have the whip count of uh, not 60 and, and you can't get cloture. Uh, and then we also saw the elimination of the filibuster when it came to judicial appointments. So changing the filibuster isn't something that hasn't been done, and certainly in the recent past. Yeah, that's right. I think it's important to note that senators can and do change 
rules all the time. It's actually called changing precedent in Senate speak, and it just takes a majority of senators. And so you're absolutely right, Jeff, that they changed the rules specifically for the filibuster uh, back in 2013 was the first time. And then Democrats said, Republicans, you're blocking all of President Obama's nominees. He can't have his cabinet. You're not allowing him to have his government filled. We're getting rid of the filibuster for all nominees, except for Supreme Court. We still think that should be bipartisan. Guess what happened three, four years later? Republicans got rid of the filibuster for the Supreme Court. And through that, managed to put three conservative justices on in the Trump era. And so that was actually Senator Sinema's point. When she spoke, she said, hey, look at what happened. I see that as as eroding bipartisanship. I see that as bad for democracy and just like taking policy to the polls of the party because, you know, there were some pretty conservative Supreme Court justices that got on in the Trump era. But I think that more liberal senators would argue that the filibuster can and should be changed and that it's largely used for obstruction that's holding things up that is actually a hindrance to democracy right now. So what has been the point of the filibuster? We've heard so much uh, in the past about the Senate being the saucer that cools the coffee that comes from the House. Uh, Why the 60-vote requirement? Well, as you talked about, the House is majority rule. So whoever has the majority, 218 votes, they get to pass what they want. The idea is exactly what you just said, which is for the the Senate to require more bipartisanship, because rarely, rarely does one party have 60 out of 100 senators. And the Senate is set up to give uh, states, smaller states in population and smaller geographic states, as much sway as like a really big state. And so, uh, you know, lately with the American geographic separation, that has meant that it tends to give conservative, more rural states and Americans just as much sway as the senators from, say, California, who are super liberal. So the idea of the Senate filibuster is to, for controversial legislation, to require the Senate to find compromise, you know, across ideally the whole the whole nation. You know, can, can you get senators from North Dakota to agree with senators from California to get legislation passed? And you know what? They did that last year with an infrastructure package. Um, that got passed on a bipartisan basis. And that, that was a big deal. But lately, critics of the filibuster will point out that it's used for pretty much every type of legislation, not just the really big controversial stuff. So what about some of the other ideas for filibuster reform? For example, going back to the Mr. Smith goes to Washington. If you want to block legislation, you got to stand up there and read the phone book. Yeah, that's actually something that I think could be likely were it not for Senator Sinema, who, who came out on Thursday in the Senate floor and said, I don't think there should be any changes to the filibuster. But that's something Senator Manchin and, and Senate Democratic leaders have talked about, which is, why don't we make the filibuster as painful as possible for people to execute? Since it technically is, is the idea of it is to stop and stall legislation. Well, if you're going to do that, if you're going to get in the Senate's way, why don't we make it as painful as possible for you to do that? So you have to go and you have to talk on the Senate floor. I think was a, there was a shutdown in the Obama era where Ted Cruz read Green Eggs and Ham as a goodnight story to his little girls from the Senate floor while he was filibustering. Um, you know, those are examples rare, rare of a filibuster being taken. Like you said, the old school Mr. Smith goes to Washington way. But uh, critics of that change, and I've talked to people in Senate Democratic leadership who are opposed to it, say that they feel like that doesn't really actually morph how the filibuster works 
because it might make it less frequent, uh, but it would still require 60 votes to overcome something. And that doesn't solve their immediate problem, which is how do you get voting rights legislation through a Republican filibuster? So to Kirsten Cinema, why is she so opposed to this? Because when she was able to win that office in Arizona and, and take over for a, a longtime Republican senator, there was a lot of cheering on the left, but yet she has now become enemy number one for the progressives. Yeah, she has. I, you know, there. I don't know how serious it will be treated or how much attention it will get, but there definitely is an effort to primary Senator Cinema on the left whenever she's up again. Um, which is not this election cycle. So she, her argument was that the filibuster is actually a tool for moderation. Uh, and she said she views moderation not passing these major changes to election law, which is one party support, as a means to an end for healthier democracy. To her, it's just like a totally different way of seeing the world, her and the rest of the Democratic Party, basically, uh, to, to a lot of Democrats in the Senate and the House, certainly, they see the filibuster as a blockade for democracy. It's something that Republicans are using to try to protect their own political health um, by keeping these restrictive voting laws in places in key states. And to her, she sees the filibuster as a, a healthy tool to force Democrats to negotiate with Republicans. You know, she even said on the Senate floor, and I'm summarizing here, I, I wish that Senate Democrats had tried hard get Republicans to support this voting rights legislation. All right, Amber Phillips, reporter with the Washington Post. Thank you so much for your time and insight. Thank you. When we come back, is it the end of presidential debates as we've known them? The GOP threatens to ban its nominees from debating Democrats when the Como Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelab. This week, the Republican National Committee said it plans to make a major change heading into the 2024 election cycle. They want to prohibit Republican nominees from participating in debates. They just don't like the Commission on Presidential Debates. Joining me now is ABC's Andy Field. And am I reading this right? Am I hearing this right? The Republican Party doesn't want to participate in presidential debates anymore? Not any of them that are sponsored by the Commission on Presidential Debates, which is, which is a nonpartisan group uh, that basically uh, is a referee that doesn't or isn't supposed to favor a Democrat or Republican, but simply uh, set up a situation where both of the candidates who are debating can uh, get up there and have a free and honest debate. Uh, now, Almost none of this came up before a certain president became elected. We know that Donald Trump uh, had criticized the commission uh, since his first campaign against Hillary Clinton. He complained that one of its co-chairs, Mike McMurray, was a White House press secretary under Bill Clinton. He also complained that the debates were being held at the same time as an NFL game, and he didn't want to compete against that. Uh, so it's hard to see this as being anything other than Donald Trump led or inspired because before this, there was never a problem with presidential debates. Uh, but suddenly there is, uh, you remember famously Donald Trump uh, actually opted out of one of them because he wasn't happy with one of the moderators. Uh, and we see what happens when Donald Trump, um, and, and this is again, assuming that he might be the nominee the next time around. And maybe that's the assumption that the GOP has, but uh, we saw just, this week that uh, Mr. Trump had an interview with NPR uh, where he was pressed, unlike when he gets 
some of these softball interviews on on Trump friendly networks on conservative uh, cable networks, uh, he was pressed about uh, his election lies. And uh, 11 minutes into what was supposed to be a much longer interview, he just hung up the phone. Uh, you can't really hung up, hang up the phone in the middle of a debate. So perhaps the GOP is saying, hey, if we don't do it on our terms, if we don't if we don't rig it in our in our uh, favor, we're just not going to do it at all. And what, by the way, what the GOP wants to do is get a loyalty pledge from every Republican candidate running for the nomination for the presidential office, uh, saying, if you want to run for office and you want to get the nomination of the party, you're going to have to agree not to do these debates. This would be the most controversial move in some time when it comes to presidential debates. Has there been any response from the commission? Well, the commission basically said, look, this is a fair, honest debate. We are going to continue to set these things up. If they don't want to show up, they don't show up. It's We can't control that, but uh, the commission's still in place. It's still going to, to try to do these things. Uh, now, again, this is a proposal for the GOP. Will they carry it out? Will they go through with it? The whole Republican Party has to vote on it as a, as a platform before they actually go to their convention. So we'll see what happens. What have we seen in, in the past historically uh, fights over presidential debates? Have, have we seen anything similar? There's always some back and forth between who the moderator is, is this person biased that there isn't. But again, we've never seen anything to the extent that we did when Donald Trump became uh, president or even a candidate where he was complaining about virtually everything. He didn't like where the, the stage was. He didn't want a plexiglass shield during COVID, even though we now know that he was probably COVID positive during one of the debates with Joe Biden uh, and his whole family refused to wear a mask into the, into the thing. This is a man who basically doesn't think any of the rules apply to him. Uh, especially when it comes to these circumstances and uh, other people suffer the consequences from it. In fact, he suffered the consequences as well. He was in grave danger uh, with his own health because uh, he wasn't wearing a mask and wasn't following uh, the protocols. So it doesn't just extend to debates. It's, it's virtually in every corner of life with people where he held these rallies that were became super spreader events. Uh, and, it seems to have somehow permeated its way into the uh, entire Republican Party, which, by the way, Republican donors are finding out that a lot of the money that they're giving to elect Republican candidates are is ending up in the pocket of Donald Trump to pay his legal expenses, which I'm not sure that that's what the donors were intending to do. Now, a move like this by the Republican Party certainly may energize Trump's base, but I can't imagine pulling out of presidential debates is going to win over any moderates. Well, I don't think that that is, it doesn't seem to be a concern of the Republican Party to win over moderates, that they're, uh, that the the whole uh, axis of the party is swung pretty far right, or at least if not far right, into an era that, that says whatever Trump thinks is right, that's what we think is right. Uh, we saw it in Lindsey Graham this week, which in an extraordinary statement said he doesn't even think he's going to support Mitch McConnell as a Republican leader again unless Mitch McConnell makes nice with Donald Trump. Uh, extraordinary. The other, the other part we saw this week with uh, Ted Cruz, the senator, Republican from Texas, uh, who... Uh, rightfully so, called out the attack on the U.S. Capitol a year ago as a terrorist attack. He said the, the terrorist attack 
attack the U.S. Capitol. Now, if you look at the definition of domestic terrorism in this country, many of those people who stormed the Capitol uh, bloodied and, and beat some of the police officers senseless, busted into the Capitol and did all the things that they did. That is textbook in the FBI book, in the uh, in the law book, in laws that Ted Cruz helped pass uh, definition of domestic terrorism. So when he said this, Tucker Carlson on, on Fox News, who seems to have the year of the entire Republican Party, uh, had Ted Cruz on there groveling and begging for forgiveness that he used the word terrorism. He goes, well, I was inartful. I was sloppy in the way I said it and wasn't accepting his apology. He said these people weren't terrorists. They were they were fighting for the right for a stolen election. And Ted goes, yes, I know. I know it was extraordinary. The subservience that a number of Republicans in the party have to a man who's no longer in power. So why this loyalty to an individual rather than an ideology? I don't know. Other than. Other than the fact that Donald Trump seems to have the power, uh, as a Roman emperor once did in the Colosseum, to give a thumbs up or thumbs down to a candidate. And once he gives the thumbs down, the odds seem to be pretty good that you are out of politics forever. Uh, we saw what happened to Liz Cheney uh, and Adam Kinzinger, uh, who have basically been excommunicated from their own party. These are very conservative Republicans who... If before Donald Trump, if you said, who's the most conservative, who's the most Republican of the Republicans, you'd point to those two people, at least Liz Cheney, who is right on virtually all the issues that conservatives seem to want her to be right on. But when it comes to Donald Trump, she goes, look, this was wrong. This guy lied about the election. He lied about stolen elections. Uh, She feels he was responsible in large part for inciting this insurrection. And that's why she got on this January 6th committee and for doing what she thinks is right and standing up for the moral and right thing. She has literally been kicked out of the Republican party in her own state. And it's questionable whether she'll even be able to survive uh, a contest to run again. So finally, how far do we think this move or proposal to ban Republican nominees from participating in presidential debates will go? Do we think this will actually happen or is this saber rattling? Depends on how many moderate Republicans there are in these conventions and in the uh, decision making arenas where they sit down before the convention and decide, is this really going to be something we do? It's a proposal right now. They actually have to vote for it. So that means that if you run for office as a Republican and you don't agree with your own party's platform to say, hey, I'm going to refuse to be part of these debates if I win, uh, the likelihood of you getting that nomination is going to be much less. All right, ABC's Andy Field, thank you so much for your time and insight. Thank you, Jeff. Still to come, twin and some might say conflicting rulings from the U.S. Supreme Court when the Como Politicast continues. After this, welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Twin rulings from the U.S. Supreme Court this week, and some might say conflicting rulings having to do with the Biden administration's efforts to put in vaccine mandates. Joining me now on the Como Newsline is White House reporter Tyler Pager. He's with the Washington Post. And uh, well, first off, let, let's give the quick background. What exactly did the Supreme Court rule? Right. So thanks so much for having me to start. And so what the Supreme Court 
did was stop the Biden administration from implementing its broad vaccine or testing requirement for the nation's largest employers. So this was a core piece of the Biden administration's pandemic response, which was through the Labor Department and the um, Occupational Safety and Health Administration, a part of the Department of Labor. They put out this mandate that uh, employers with over 100 employees would, ma- would have to mandate that their employees ha- either get the coronavirus vaccine or submit to testing. Um, and the Supreme Court ruled that that was, uh, uh, they were not, they didn't have the authority to do that. At the same time, they allowed um, the Department of Health and Human Services to require vaccinations for most healthcare workers at facilities that receive federal funds. So funding from Medicaid or Medicare. So why the difference between the two rulings? Right. So basically, it comes down to statutory laws and what Congress has delegated authority to um, its agencies. The the justices or the majority of the justices said that Congress had not given OSHA, that part of the Labor Department, power to impose such a sweeping mandate in workplaces across the country. But um, two of the conservative justices joined the three liberal justices to say that the Secretary of Health and Human Services in the Biden administration, Javier Becerra, did have the ability to require vaccination of healthcare workers at facilities re- receiving federal funds. So this goes to really kind of the minutia of, of federal case law, doesn't it? Right. And, and I think the difference is just the sweep of the rulings, right? The OSHA vaccine or test requirement would have applied to 84 million people, and the healthcare worker requirement only applies to about 10 million. So you mentioned that two of the conservative justices sided with the three liberals in in allowing the mandate for healthcare workers to go forward. Who were they, and and, and what was their thinking? Yeah, so it was the three liberal justices: Breyer, uh, Sotomayor, um, Elena Kagan, and then the conservative justices were Chief Justice John Roberts and and Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Um, and so, you know, I think it was about this. The, the difference in, 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 in sweep and authority, right? One of the key differences here is that the healthcare workers are those receiving federal funds. And so there are conditions that they can set um, to in order to receive those federal funds. What about the more conservative members of the court? You saw Justice Amy Coney Barrett, Justice Clarence Thomas, uh, probably two of the most, if not the most conservative members. What was their dissent on that? Right. So the, the conservative members, the most conservative justices, question exactly how much power Congress could give an agency. So even going further to, to look at that delegation of power, in his um, opinion, Judge, Justice Gorsuch wrote, um, he wondered if federal law really did endow OSHA with the power it asserts that law would likely constitute an unconstitutional delegation of legislative authority, saying if oh, if. Congress had even given the power to do that. He didn't know that that would be constitutional. So they really were, were looking at, as you said, the federal case law here and the, and the, and the balance of power between the executive branch and, and the legislative branch. What's been the response from the White House? Yeah, I, I mean, this is a significant blow to um, the president and his uh, coronavirus response. This is one of the efforts that the White House um, had been hopeful for that would boost vaccines 
uh, uptake around the country, particularly as we are in the middle of the Omicron wave. Um, and, 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 you know, just reading from the president's statement here, he said, quote, the court has ruled that my administration cannot use the authority granted to it by Congress to require this measure. But that does not stop me from using my voice as president to advocate for employers to do the right thing to protect Americans' health and economy, end quote. And so, you know, the White House is conceding defeat here, but saying the president is going to continue to use the bully pulpit to try to cajole and, and encourage Americans to get the vaccine. But as we enter year three of the pandemic, um, you know, and, and the vaccines have been widely available for quite some time, there are limited options and, and, and uh, avenues for the White House. Uh, from from them to to really boost vaccine uptake in the country. But we've already seen some private companies kind of take up that cause of the White House. Absolutely. And I think that is what we will continue to see. The White House will tout those efforts. Um, they've already brought in some of the, the CEOs of those big companies that have required vaccines um, and, in you know, cities and states um, encouraging or requiring vaccine mandates, whether it's, to, you know, go to a bar or eat in a restaurant. I think we're going to see the president and his allies tout those efforts, but but limited in terms of their ability to enforce those mandates from the federal level. All right, Tyler Page, a reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Still to come, a look at the lighter side of politics with some of the more entertaining pieces of legislation that state lawmakers have already put forward. When the Como Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogel. A time to talk taxes and tax day 2022 has been delayed. This time it has nothing to do with COVID-19, and ABC's Jim Ryan is on our Como News line. Uh, what's the reason, Jim? Yeah, it's not even a very long delay. It's only three days until April 18th instead of April 15th, and it's because of the Emancipation Day, the holiday that's celebrated in Washington, D.C., and shuts down the IRS for a couple of days. So, uh, yeah, the, the deadline pushed back now from the 15th to April 18th. The filing season begins on January 24th. You can get in a little bit earlier if you feel like it by using the IRS free file function, which is uh, professional tax preparers around the country offering their services for free. Uh, so you can get it done electronically, get it done early and, and be done with it and perhaps even get your refund if you do, if you're owed a refund a little earlier than you would have otherwise. Jim, do we know if there's been any improvement with the internal problems that they've had at the IRS with with understaffing and underfunding? Improvement? No. Has it gotten worse? Yes, by a lot. If you look at the numbers, Greg, the population of the U.S. has grown by about 60% since 1970. The tax code obviously is much more complex than it was back then, but the size of the workforce at the IRS has been essentially the same. In fact, there are fewer IRS auditors now than at any time since World War II. That's ABC's Jim Ryan talking with Como's Manda Factor and Greg Herschel. Finally this week, some of the more interesting bills that have been put forward in Olympia less than a week into the year's legislative session. One bill would make Women's Suffrage Day a state holiday, honoring when women got the right to vote. Legislative staffer Desiree Omley says the bill recognizes the adoption of the 19th Amendment. It was first introduced in Congress in 1878, and both chambers of Congress passed the 19th Amendment in 1919, at which point it needed ratification by 36 states in order for it to be adopted as part of the U.S. Constitution. Now, Washington was the 35th state to ratify it. Under the bill as it is now, March 22nd, the day Washington Washington ratified the 19th Amendment would become the next state holiday. But there is still a debate over whether that day should be used or instead August 18th when the 19th Amendment finally became law. Another bill would finally give Washington State an official nickname. 
Now, you may think Washington already has a nickname, the Evergreen State, but that's not official in any way. Ever since Washington was admitted to the Union, lawmakers have codified various symbols. These range from the flag, the state song, which is Washington, my home, the state vegetable, the Walla Walla sweet onion, to the most recent official state symbol, which is the Austria Lurida, or Olympia oyster, which became the official state oyster in 2014. Now, legislative staffer Sam Brown says the evergreen state was coined by a realtor in 1889 to promote commerce and tourism, but it was never put into law. Senate Bill 5512 would change that. Lawmakers are also arguing over how best to set our clocks. In 2019, the state legislature passed a bill that would make Washington observe daylight saving time year-round. But that requires congressional approval. Now, lawmakers are considering using standard time year-round, which would not need approval from D.C. Legislative staffer Melissa Van Gorkum. The act would expire following the effective date of federal legislation, allowing the state to observe daylight savings time year-round, at which point the the state of Washington and all of its political subdivisions would observe Pacific daylight time year-round. Now, I know that's a lot to keep track of in your head, but just remember this. If that bill is approved, Washington clocks would be set the same as mountain time for much of the year. And that will do it for this episode of the Como Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Como News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and much more. All are available at comonews.com slash podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogelup. Thank you for listening and have a good week. <laughs>